In forgiving, we often have to live within the world of mysteries and doubts, let go of the self as the ultimate point of reference, relinquish the sovereignty of the ego. Forgiveness is rarely a linear logical act. It often requires a leap. Likewise, being able to forgive forces us to give up our need for absolutes. Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. You just heard Barbara Bonner reading from her new book, Inspiring Forgiveness, Poems, Quotations, and True Stories to Help with Forgiving Yourself and Others. In this episode, I talk to Barbara about forgiveness, what it means, the conditions we need to forgive, and to what extent Buddhists engage with the practice of forgiveness. Meditation teacher and author Sharon Salzberg joins our conversation, which I think is a particularly helpful one as we close a turbulent and traumatic year. Committed to a life of Buddhist study and practice, Barbara Bonner has her own consulting practice supporting nonprofit leadership. She's also the author of the books Inspiring Generosity and Inspiring Courage, both by Wisdom Publications. Her current book came out in mid-March of this year, just as the COVID-19 pandemic began in the U.S. The book is a series of stories about people who were moved to forgive under seemingly impossible circumstances, with quotations and poetry to support and nurture forgiveness along the way. Okay, Barbara Bonner, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Sharon Salzberg is my co-host today. I always love working with Sharon. It's lots of fun. So welcome, Sharon. Hello. It is a lot of fun. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Sharon. I should say that we all know each other, so this should be a pretty relaxed and fun conversation. So, Barbara, you've written Inspiring Courage, Inspiring Generosity, and now Inspiring Forgiveness. So tell us, why forgiveness? I have to take it a little bit circuitously. This is a a somewhat late-in-life surprise career, writing these three books. And uh, I was so surprised and honored when Wisdom Publications uh, wanted me to write on generosity seven years ago. It's a subject near and dear to my heart. And so they just took a chance. And uh, it turned out to have some resonance to a lot of people. I'd worked with philanthropists, but what I was interested in was what does it take to live a generous life? That was really what I was interested in, not giving and exchanging material goods. So that book worked. They said, what else do you want to write on? So then we went to courage. And again, I was interested in a redefinition of courage, really understanding it a new way, not the saving the child from the burning building, but leading a courageous life. So I got a choice on the third one, and forgiveness has always been really important to me, near and dear to my heart. And I thought, is there is there a way to offer this to this very angry and grudge-holding world that we live in right now? It seems like a, a pretty good antidote. And again, I wanted to do it not in terms of apology and granting forgiveness as an act, but how do we live more forgiving lives? So we often hear the question, why should I forgive? So why should we forgive? Well, it, uh, it's an exercise in compassion, and compassion expands our lives. It expands our world, our relationships with other people. It's, uh, as Buddhaghosa says, it's putting down the hot ember that gets in our way so often. 
and makes for a much more fulfilling world. So is forgiveness for the person asking for forgiveness, or is it for the person who's doing the forgiving? How does that relationship work? Well, I, I think it's both. I think really, um, I'm, I don't see forgiveness as an act. I see it as something that we bring into our lives. And then we almost follow it and see where it wants to take us. Uh, can we live in a more forgiving world? And we create that world. It's both granting it. Can we just set down the ember? Or can we ask for forgiveness? Okay, before we get into that, before we talk about forgiving, I just want to refer to something you wrote in the book about an experience you had writing family members, sending an apology and asking for forgiveness. And one of them responded without forgiveness. And that must have been difficult because we come to this with expectations and sometimes they're not met. Do you want to say something about that? It was such an interesting exercise. Thank you for bringing it up. It was after I'd become immersed in the subject for about a year and a half. And there were two people in my life that I had no great sin, but I had caused them unhappiness. And and it lingered, it festered, and it pushed me to write to them both. And one responded very lovingly and immediately and with great generosity. And the other was very uh, sarcastic and uh, disbelieving, somewhat coy. And although the first reaction felt a lot better, I realized that it really didn't matter. My work was done. I had opened it up and cleared my own slate and opened my heart to both of them. So it was a great exercise for me. I didn't mean for it to be such a great exercise, but it helped a lot mm -hmm. in writing the book. <laughs> okay, I've got a question for both of you, and I'll start with you, Barbara. You know, in Buddhism, we don't talk a lot about forgiveness, but you write, true forgiveness is an outgrowth of a life lived on the Eightfold Path. Can you say a little bit about that? Yes, well, I certainly don't mean that it's spoken of, but I think that if we conscientiously or with diligence uh, live a life outlined on the Eightfold Path, I see it almost as a natural outcome. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with it, but just as I believe that's true of generosity and courage also, I think it's just a natural outflow, or at least the ability to experience forgiveness is a natural outflow. Sharon, your first teacher was S.N. Goenka, and the other day you mentioned that he taught a forgiveness prayer, or was it a practice? Mm -hmm. I was surprised to hear that. What was that? Well, my first teacher was S.N. Goenka. This was January 1971, some considerable period ago, and it was basically a mindfulness course, very much mindfulness of the body, and right at the end, he taught a little loving-kindness practice, which was the first time I ever heard of that. And it was almost a kind of ceremonial way of saying goodbye. And he began that with this forgiveness recitation. If I have hurt or harmed you knowingly or unknowingly, I ask your forgiveness. And if you have hurt or harmed me knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive you. So, um, well, actually, two people, two different people just yesterday said to me, you don't really hear the word forgiveness in terms of the Buddhist teachings. It was right there at the beginning of my practice. And, and you probably don't hear it, certainly as much as you might hear it in Christianity, I suppose, although that's not my first religion either, so I can't really speak 
speak much about that. But um, I was reading Barbara's book, and I saw so many of the really beautiful quotations were from like Bishop Desmond Tutu or people like that, you know, from that faith. But anyway, I, I also was thinking as you recited the list of Barbara's books that generosity is really manifested sometimes through forgiveness. It is an act of generosity. And it's certainly an act of courage in many cases. I know I myself don't tend to use the word forgiveness a lot in teaching because so many people have lots of different interpretations about it. You know, that I know from Sylvia Borstein in Barbara's book, it's Desmond Tutu who says forgiveness is not forgetting. The way Sylvia says it is forgiveness is not amnesia, but we might tend to think it is. And so I try to somehow convey the spirit without uh, necessarily the word, which I find just riles people up sometimes because they hear it as coercion. You know, you're forced to forgive or you'll never heal. You've got to forgive or you'll never grow or make progress. And, and that seems unfortunate. Okay. We'll get into that a little later. There are so many different approaches to forgiveness. But the stories you tell are varied. In fact, they're very moving about empathy and love and so forth. But most of them deal with pretty grave issues, school shootings, genocide. Are they meant to encourage us to engage with forgiveness when the stakes are much lower? Yes, I I purposely picked really, I went right out on the edge of the toughest stories that uh, I was offered and, and could find. Because the goal is really, if you can put yourself in those shoes and just try it on for size in the situation that's described, that at some point in the future when you may need it, it's perhaps more likely to come back to you. Yes, they were very tough stories. And yet they're different. Uh, I can think of two that share some characteristics, though. The Emanuel Nine, in the case of the church in South Carolina, and the school shooting in the Amish community in Pennsylvania several years ago. In both cases, forgiveness was part of a pattern of religious practice. And to outsiders, it can seem very inauthentic, yet they presumably felt this forgiveness and responded in that way. Could you say something about that? Because it seems forced or obligatory to a lot of people. Yes, uh, those two stories have that in common and many other things. Another thing they have is the contagious quality, actually, of forgiveness in the communities afterwards. Yeah, the Amish community is very interesting. I read a lot about the Amish religion and Amish culture. From the very earliest age, children are taught never to hold a grudge to always immediately say that they're sorry, ask for forgiveness. It's actually drilled part of not just their religion, but their culture and who they are. So in that story of 10 people being shot, five killed uh, in a school shooting, really the first school shooting that was a shock to us in this country before others, uh, the second shock was that the uh, Amish community came to the parents of the shooter that night and offered forgiveness in addition to food and offering to pay for the funeral. It was just who they were. It was what their culture does. I don't think, at least I certainly in reading about them, I didn't have the feeling of struggle. They simply moved into it. And of course, in Charleston, it was very similar. I mean, how is it possible, we say, when our child or parent is murdered, the next day we walk into a courtroom and speak to the defendant and say, we forgive you. It's part of their culture, 
part of their Christian heritage that that is what they do. I, I don't think there was struggle. I think there was a sense of this is what I do. This is all I can offer. You know, when I hear stories like that, I feel very resistant because I'm one of the people who feels it's very forced or obligatory. I don't doubt their sincerity. But for me, as for many, there's a real tension between wanting to forgive and actually getting there. I normally think of forgiveness as the culmination of a process. And as Sharon says, with forgiveness comes a great freedom. I was surprised to discover that you were a childhood friend of Sue Klebold's, the mother of Dylan Klebold, the Columbine shooter. In her case, the forgiveness was forgiveness for herself. It is. That was actually surprising to me, that it was her entire struggle wrapped around self-forgiveness. Yeah, I've known Susie since the third grade, a product of an extremely loving family. Her sister's my best friend. I've known her forever. And I completely believe her when she says that she had no clue, just no clue. This was a relatively happy child. I mean, he was an adolescent, so there were bumps. But as he said goodbye that morning, she had no idea at all. And imagine standing in the driveway, uh, having heard that there's a shooting at your son's school, to have them pull up and say that not only had he been the shooter, but he had killed himself. So it was one of those stories when I really got to grapple with what do we do when everything falls apart? And Susie went through all of Dylan's diaries, material, retraced everything from his earliest years. And as she said, forgiving him as a mom was not difficult, but it happened on her watch. Uh, and she said she'll never really be finished with self-forgiveness. It's a constant struggle. And I think she pours herself into now going around speaking about teen suicide, suicide prevention, donating the proceeds of her book to try to come to grips with that. But it, it's self-forgiveness is her struggle. And she has no answers other than to say it's ongoing. So Barbara, Sue Klebold struggles to forgive herself. And um, many of us who are watching this feel a lot of compassion for her because we feel that she has done nothing really. And yet she tries to find a path to forgiving herself. And I, I found that very moving. And at the same time, I wondered, forgiveness is so tough, but in her case, it even seems perhaps almost unfair to ask of herself. And as you said, James, I think quite often just the word forgiveness gets us in such trouble. There's such resistance. It's such a tall bar that if we can think in terms of compassion, I think that it softens, it, it allows us to, to open up our hearts and move in a direction that can be very helpful to us and to everyone Forgiveness sounds just tough to a lot of people. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, that the um, difference between a more like daily life experience of forgiveness and, and that sort of extreme, tragic, traumatic incident, it's actually in those more extreme situations that I've encountered people less willing to use the word forgiveness, although they are displaying it. You know, like one time I taught in Israel, I was with a colleague who gave a talk on forgiveness, and there was a participant in the retreat who clearly the whole time was very physically uncomfortable and he was sort of like wiggling and moving and stuff. And so he came up to complain to me about my colleague's talk on forgiveness. And uh, at one point he said that he'd been in a terrorist attack and he had all this shrapnel still in his body. 
He was always in pain. And he looked at me and he said, I'll never forgive. And then he said, but what I've seen is absolutely essential is to learn to stop hating. And I thought, I'll take that. You know, that's not bad. Constant pain, that commitment to having a better life and a better mind state and not just to dwell in hatred and and that sort of toxicity on top of everything else. That's a pretty big thing. And actually, the one of the times I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., you know, kind of the last exhibit, the last thing you see or hear is this video testimony from people who were very young children at the time of the Holocaust and were either, you know, grew up separated from their parents or were in a concentration camp, some terrible thing. And there was this one woman, it was the last thing I saw before walking out the door, who had a horrific story of, of her childhood. And then the last thing she said was, and I'll never forgive. And then she said, but I've brought up my own children to love instead of to hate. And then I walked out the door. And I thought, you don't have to call that forgiveness, but I am awestruck at that. And so and I actually find people use the word forgiveness more, even in the Buddhist context, in the kind of daily misunderstanding, grudge, need to kind of work something out so it doesn't linger, something like that. I just wanted to follow through for a second on what Sharon said with a brief story. Uh, as, as I was writing the book and people asked me what I was writing on this time, and I get very superstitious and don't really want to say anything. Sharon, on the other hand, is very generous in talking about what she's writing on. <laughs> but so I would sort of mutter forgiveness, mm, forgiveness. And universally, the reaction would be, oh, I could just see it sort of shaking the head and looking down and going, oh, tough one. Everybody said that. Nobody said, wow, can't wait to read it. <laughs> and then the second reaction was they wanted to tell a story, brief story of somebody who had done something terrible to them, some great wrong that ended with, and I'll never forgive him. And I became so curious about this that we can recount a story of something personally painful happening to us and we have to link it with non-forgiveness. You know, what is that? Why can we not just say this terrible thing happened to me, or this was so painful for me, or this has lingered, but I'll never forgive him. It, it was just followed like the night, the day that people would say that. And I think it's our big brains and egos just needing to cling to be right. We have to be right all the time. Uh, but it really it was a very interesting thing to observe. So Sharon mentioned two things that are stories in your book, one a terrorist attack in the London tube, and the other about two Holocaust survivors, Ava Kaur and her twin sister, Miriam. They were the subjects of Joseph Mengele's medical experimentation on people. And Eva not only forgives one of the physician perpetrators, but also Mengele himself. And that sparked real outrage. And I have to say, I was one of those people that felt that way, despite the fact that I never suffered such a fate. I could see my limit. And so then I realized I was glad you put it in the book because it pointed out to me what my limit was. Well, that's really why I did put it in there. And I've been criticized for putting it in there. But it is the outer limit, I think. Uh, it was It was tough to read. It was tough to write. And I'm not sure it's totally forgiveness 
she just became so tired of carrying the burden. She had to set it down. Whether we call that forgiveness or what we want to call it, she was able to, and I have to give her credit for that. She just simply had to set the burden down if she couldn't tolerate it any longer. And I think that's understandable, whatever we call it. Sometimes it's not even about forgiveness for me. You know, Joseph Goldstein taught, and I think Sharon too, that sometimes when that doesn't feel possible, it is possible to wish that people be free of anger, greed, and delusion, what in Buddhism we call the three poisons. I can do that because why wouldn't I want them to be free of anger, greed, and delusion? We'd all be better off. And that goes for myself too. Sharon, maybe you have something to say about that. Yeah, I think that's good. You know, like on a less awful level, I see forgiveness as also a way of kind of cleaning the slate to see what might be possible because change is possible. It's not definite, you know, like the character is going to reform in the way I want to see, but it's tuning into that aliveness, you know, because change is like life. And I don't know that that's the most ready response in these tragic, tragic, terrible times. And in fact, I want to say something else about ordinary times. But first, I remember talking to Tim DeChristopher, who's an environmental activist, who's somebody who committed this act of civil disobedience and then um, was put in jail to everyone's shock for something that was normally treated with like a fine or something. He was put in prison for two years. And when he left prison, he went to Harvard Divinity School. So I was always kind of interested in him. And then we ended up talking and he's in my book, Real Change. And one of the things he said was that if you have been directly harmed by somebody, maybe having compassion for the perpetrator is not your first job, let's say. Surviving, maybe, you know, becoming whole, being able to move on. But you kind of, from the point of view of a spiritual life or a religious perspective, you kind of hope somebody can have compassion for that person. So he, he was talking about establishing a compassion core for the times when it's rightful that we are needing to survive, offer loving kindness to ourselves, you know, have a sense of reclaiming our energy and our life force intact, you know, instead of so much of it being kind of stolen by someone else's action. And I thought, what an intriguing idea. You know, I don't think it's somebody's job at that moment, which is why some of these stories are astonishing because of the pace. You know, and like I said, it's not my own background, a religious tradition, so I don't come from that, you know, from a place of understanding, oh, well, that would be what that would be like. But I, I sort of like that idea of a compassion course. So I'll just put that out there. But, you know, I, when I think about day-to-day -day forgiveness, I actually think about my Burmese teacher, Saida Upandita, who came to America, came to the Insight Meditation Society in Barry in 1984 for the first time. It was his first trip to the States. We had invited him to teach this three-month retreat, never having met him before. And uh, I was sitting, Joseph was sitting, but I could tell that there were difficulties. You know, first of all, he comes from a culture of tremendous respect. You know, teachers are just, even school teachers, you know, are treated with a certain kind of respect. He wasn't used to an environment 
where he would give an instruction and the student would kind of say, why? Why should I do that? You know, or whatever we say, like prove it. So he was, he was like in shock. And he also was holding some of those monastic rules in a really strict way, which was tremendously burdensome for the staff here. And, and I kept thinking, something's wrong. You know, this is like the seventh place he slept. He kept, they kept moving him from place to place to place to place to exceed the rules. And, you know, it just was like wild. And I could tell there was just a lot of tension. So three months went by. I was a silent meditator. He was the only person I spoke to for three months. And he got up to say goodbye. He got up on the platform. And the first thing he said was, if I've hurt or harmed you knowingly or unknowingly, I ask your forgiveness. And if you have hurt or harmed me knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive you. And even though we'd had a really good and important for me relationship as teacher-student, I felt like a burden did fall away with his saying that. Because I thought, oh, you know, were I to meet him again, I don't have to be like all paranoid, like, oh, he's going to look at me and think, you're the one who started that center where they don't even know how to treat a Buddhist monk. And I wasn't going to look at him and think, you're the one who came to the West totally unprepared for what you were going to find culturally. It's like we could start a new, and in fact, that's exactly what happened. The following year, I went to Burma, and he was my metta teacher. He was my loving kindness teacher, which, of course, was hugely important for me. And it was like we met anew. We weren't carrying that. And, you know, when I've told that story, I've heard married couples say to me, we're going to do that every night or we're going to do that every morning. You know, we're going to ritualize that in some way so that that day-to-day level of misunderstanding and not really meeting and let's clear it, you know, and just go on. So that's a level in which I think it's very applicable. You're listening to Tricycle Talks, a podcast from Tricycle The Buddhist Review. As 2020 draws to a close, we at Tricycle are taking a moment of reflection and gratitude for the teachings, practices, and community that have nourished us through these turbulent times. As we face ongoing uncertainty, Tricycle is committed to providing a space of refuge and contemplation for all who seek out Buddhist teachings. In the year ahead, we'll continue to offer a wide range of free and low-cost resources to help you navigate the path forward with an open mind and open heart. If you've benefited from Tricycle's free podcast this year, please consider supporting our work with a year-end donation. We're a nonprofit organization, and it's generosity of our donors that allow us to keep our operations running and launch new initiatives. Your support makes all the difference. Please donate at tricycle.org slash donate. As a special gift, if you donate $25 or more, you'll receive a copy of our new ebook, Five Practices to Change Your Mind, which offers instruction in foundational Buddhist practices. Donate today at tricycle.org slash donate. Now, let's return to James Shaheen and Sharon Salzberg in conversation with Barbara Bonner. Sharon mentioned change, Barbara, and it makes me think of a story in your book in which John Lewis forgives George Wallace, and George Wallace expressed remorse. That surprised me because I had no idea that George Wallace ever expressed remorse. 
So that really told me something about my fixed notion of others. And the great thing about the book is that it really puts me face to face with my own biases and my own fixed ideas about others. Do you want to say something about that? Oh, it was just such a huge privilege, an overused word, but truly to read everything that he wrote and speeches and work with his staff. Yeah, I think the um, there are a couple of Lewis stories in the book which have meaning, but in his, um, I don't know if you want a quotation from that section or not, or if you want me to just speak, but he starts by saying, George Wallace should be remembered for his capacity to change, and we're better as a nation because of our capacity to forgive and to acknowledge that our political leaders are human and largely a reflection of the social currents in the river of history. And it goes on from there. But the capacity to change, it's quite stunning. And it does, as we talk about the, a political scene, I want to say, you know, in writing a book on forgiveness, I don't want anyone to think that I think forgiving all the time, everyone, is a good idea. There are times when right action has to come in <laughs> into play. And you can have compassionate right action and still guard ourselves. People have said, what about abusers? Well, of course, you have to protect yourself. You have to get out of the way. You have to do the right thing. But a capacity to change. I loved what he wrote about Wallace and what a, what a surprise it was. I'm glad it was a surprise to you too. Yeah, I'm thinking about something that Sharon just said about intention. And I always thought of forgiveness as requiring that we say precisely what it is that we've done in order for it to be authentic or effective. But I heard what Sharon said very differently and in the past did not respond to it this way. But just the intention to be fair, loving, and forgiving is really transformational. So I'm hearing it differently right now. Do one of you want to say something about that? Well, I think just in terms of what Barbara was just saying, that I sometimes try to draw a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation, that they're actually different. You know, if I go through this maybe heartfelt process, maybe really difficult process. That doesn't mean I want to have dinner with you either, you know, like that you do want to protect yourself or protect others or fight for what you consider to be right, you know, or just or, or whatever. But that heart space, Barbara keeps talking about it as a burden or that ember, you know, it really can be so damaging. It's just being filled with resentment, for example. Barbara, did you want to say something? I was just going to say, I, I think that forgiveness is such a high bar that we have to really be satisfied with intention. Intention is enormous. It's hard enough. <laughs> and it achieves enough so much of the time. To hold it in our hearts as an intention and let it follow its own stream, you don't know where it's going to go. But if that is your intention, chances are pretty good that good things are going to follow. Not immediately, but they are going to follow. Actually, my next question was going to be about reconciliation because I talked to Sharon about it yesterday. And Barbara, in your book, you mentioned a woman's forgiveness in Rwanda. And their reconciliation was a process and it was necessary really for survival. And yet these people really seem to be sincere in their desire to reconcile. Do one of you want to say something about that? You know, the three most obvious examples are Northern Ireland, Rwanda, and South Africa. All of those countries came to peace through very concerted efforts towards forgiveness. 
I don't know if you know, but there are different forgiveness institutes and forgiveness organizations that worked with all three countries. But it was a long, tough process. But that was at the center in all three cases. We think of it as just an individual act. It's an individual act that builds families and communities, and if we're lucky, nations as well. I'm thinking about, we once had a course here at IMS, and um, it was really a course for scientists and researchers, and somebody had done some research on Northern Ireland and that world and the process. And he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, there's always a price for peace. Yeah. And I think the vision of, of peace was also so compelling. It's like there was a reason why people were willing to go through the process that they went through. Because in, in a small place like that, as he reminded us, you might have to live next door again to somebody who had really harmed your family in some you know very definite way. And, and yet there they were. And there's always a price to peace. Yeah. And they did it largely by bringing together small groups of people who, with their huge differences, could be guided into a conversation which spread and spread and spread. Yeah. It makes me think of Nelson Mandela inviting his jailer to his inauguration and seating him in the VIP sitting area, you know. Or in your book, Amy Beale's parents hire in their not-for-profit the people who murdered her. Yes. That I found shocking and almost difficult to accept. Yes. And, and I think for the Beals, this wasn't religion. It wasn't as automatic. But what might have been spontaneous was the love of their daughter and wanting to continue her work in South Africa and feeling that that was the best way to do it. You know, we talked about feeling the pressure or obligation to forgive. And what I like about the book, there is no pressure or injunction to forgive. Rather, you, without judgment, show how it has played out for other people and the freedom that comes with that, as Sharon points out. So if I can't forgive right now, maybe I can entertain the possibility that one day I will. And I found that very helpful. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> that was the intention. <laughs> Well, you succeeded. Thank you. <laughs> I just wonder how both of you respond to this in your own practice. Uh, we can call it forgiveness or reconciliation or coming to terms with the way things are. Personally, I've found meta practice very helpful in this regard. Do one of you want to say something about what your practice is? I think meta practice is everything, really. It, it's at the center of all of it for me. If anyone says to me, what is the way in? I, I would say, just sit down and do that for years. <laughs> I'll agree with that. <laughs> I had a hunch you might, Sharon. <laughs> I had a feeling you'd agree too, Sharon. Something very funny happened the other day. I sent Sharon a story about a Barbie doll that leads meta practice. <laughs> and People were actually writing Sharon and saying, is that your voice? No, they, they're assuming it's my voice. This is on Twitter. You know, like oh someone, my God. Sent, someone sent it to me. These friends sent it to me. And it's called Meta, M-E-T-T-A, same spelling as in the Pali, you know, language. And it's billed as a forgiveness meditation. But And then she goes into teaching Meta, and it's Meta. I was stunned. And then all these people on Twitter 
were saying, did you leave Barry to go record? You know, <laughs> they just assumed it was me. And I thought, I don't, I don't listen to myself, you know, ordinarily. So I have no idea if I sound like Barbie, or, you know, like, Actually, you don't. You have a very distinctive voice. In fact, once Sharon and I were sitting in Eisenberg Deli and Sharon ordered and the woman said, are you Sharon Salzberg? And she recognized her voice from the tape. Yeah, yeah, it does happen. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. Inspiring Forgiveness is a wonderful book and we're all in lockdown, but you can still get it on Amazon if you can't make it to a bookstore. And Sharon, thank you so much for being my steady co-host. It's so much more fun doing these with you. I think it's so wonderful, even when we're talking about these very intense things. So invite me back. I'll bring Barbie. I will, and definitely bring Barbie. And thank you again, Barbara. It's so great to talk with you. It's been quite a long time. What a great pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Barbara Bonner, author of Inspiring Forgiveness, here on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.